0: Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan and I am the Chair of the Council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today are two judges of the New South Wales Supreme Court. Justice Robert Hume has been a judge of both the District Court and the Supreme Court. He has conducted a great many criminal trials and sentenced many offenders. Justice Christine Adamson is also a judge of the Supreme Court. Together with Justice Hume, she has also sentenced many offenders. Apart from their work as trial judges, they frequently sit in the Court of Criminal Appeal where many offenders' sentences are reviewed. The judges are going to discuss the principles which judges follow when sentencing in New South Wales. Justice Adamson, is sentencing easy? No, not at all. Not at all? What, what makes it hard? Um, it,
1: it's hard for a number of reasons. One of the reasons it's it's hard is that if you're in the Supreme Court, you you're usually imposing sentences of imprisonment, and the um, the responsibility for putting another human being in custody, for what is often a lengthy time, is one which weighs heavily on me, and I assume on all judges who have to do it, because it creates such a huge hardship for that person and a huge change for that person's life. So it's a big responsibility and something which one has to think about very carefully. But also one has to have regard to the the seriousness of the offence and the effect on the community and the expectation of the community certainly in New South Wales that people who commit serious offences should spend a long time in custody. So. I do find it very um, challenging.
0: And how do you go about it? What's the starting point? We, we know of maximum penalties. Uh, mm-hmm. I think for murder, it's life,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is provided by the Parliament.
1: Yes.
0: Um, how do you go about working out whether someone should receive a penalty for for life or, or some lesser penalty? What, what, what's, what's the starting point
1: for, well, for that? I suppose the, the maximum penalty is reserved for the worst category of case. And that doesn't require you to envisage the worst possible case, but it is a guidepost for um, for cases in the worst category. And so it, one has regard to how one considers the, the seriousness of the offence in light of all as possible um, permutations or matters that could fall within that, that offence to work out where it might sit. But, of course, that's only one factor to take into account in the sentence.
0: And um, is it right to think of the, the maximum penalty as the first step that a judge has to take to identify yes. all of the matters that are relevant to the ultimate sentence to be imposed?
1: Yes, I would think that logically it must be the first step. Yeah.
0: Mm. Have you ever imposed the maximum penalty on any offender?
1: No, I'm. I'm happy to say I haven't... Um, I haven't had cases which would be in that worst category and certainly if one is thinking of murder then um, murder of a child or, or a murder which involved particular cruelty or sadism would what I would imagine be in that worst category and I feel grateful that I haven't had to deal with with anyone in that worst category, although every murder is a very serious matter.
0: And that leads me to ask you about the purposes for which courts impose sentences on offenders. I think these purposes are included in a statute.
2: There is. The, we have our Crime Sentencing Procedure Act, um, which sets out in Section 3A the purposes of sentencing. but. When that legislation came into force, it did not tell us anything new, it just reflected the existing law. And there are a number of features of sentencing or purposes that we need to have regard to and they don't all point in the one direction. You, you can have the need to impose a, an appropriate punishment and there also might be a need to impose a, a punishment that allows scope for the rehabilitation of the offender, and they clearly point in two different directions in most cases. Punishment, uh, denunciation of the offender's conduct, uh, making the person accountable for what they've done, uh, reflecting the harm that they have done to a a victim, they're they're all uh, attributes of punishment uh, or uh, uh, allied concepts. But there's also uh, a need to protect the community, which is uh, somewhat different. Uh, For some offenders um, who pose a risk of further uh, offending, uh, particularly violent offending or sexual offending, protection of the community is an important issue, but as I've indicated, rehabilitation um, is often a very strong feature of the sentencing equation as well. We are required to impose a sentence that is proportionate to the uh, seriousness of the offence in question. Uh, That is, we can't impose a sentence that uh, has no reflection, either because it's too much or too little, um, uh, response to the seriousness of the offence. Engaging the seriousness of an offence and the punishment that needs to be imposed uh, requires us to take into account um, aggravating features, which um, there is um, legislation uh, that provides us with a list. And it, it... covers things like the, um, the 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 person's prior record um, whether an offense was committed in company whether there was um, violence involved in the offending or the use of a weapon things like that that aggravate the seriousness of an offense but then there are mitigating features um, that point in the direction of a, a um, a less serious sentence such as the um, the person's prior good character if uh, they have good character uh, whether they might be unlikely to reoffend whether they've got good prospects of rehabilitation they might be remorseful they might have pleaded guilty there are those factors which point in the direction of a less serious sentence are there any factors in the on the aggravating side
1: mm.
0: or on the mitigating side mm. which are more important than others
1: i think I think um the matter of um, remorse, whether the person has has shown remorse and is sorry for what they've done, that that seems to me quite a significant thing. Because if somebody really is truly remorseful, and of course everyone pretends to be remorseful, but everyone who pleads guilty pretends to be remorseful. But if someone is truly remorseful, then then that really means that or can often mean that their prospects of rehabilitation are good and that the community may not need to be protected, particularly from that person. And the person may have learned the error of their ways. And that so I think that's a pretty significant one.
0: Right. Any others that come to mind as Um, featuring in the process?
1: Also, another factor is the degree of planning. I think some people think, and perhaps if they're used to crime fiction or watching detective shows on television, that there's a degree of... Which I gather
0: of, judges don't
1: do. But. Well, I don't do it. I have enough of this in real life, I must <laughs> yeah. say. I couldn't bear any more. But the, the degree of planning, because what some people don't appreciate is that is that many homicides and many murders are really just a very bad... Five minutes or half an hour in someone's life, and and that may be quite significant to factors relating to sentence. Mm.
0: It's got something to do with the access to a gun, too. I think in some, some
1: very much so, of, yeah. uh, and also uh, you know a drug like ice can make people very who are not otherwise aggressive very aggressive, mm. and that may cause someone to kill another person.
0: Well, that raises the question which the general public often ask. Uh, If someone has committed a crime when they're on ice, which uh, regrettably seems to happen not infrequently, Mm. uh, does the judge increase or uh, reduce the sentence that might be imposed as against the person who is not on ice when they commit the crime?
1: Well, it depends. I mean, self-induced intoxication isn't an excuse for committing an offence, but if, for example somebody has had a very deprived childhood and they've grown up in an environment where they're surrounded by illicit drugs and say they've been addicted to drugs from a very young age, say the early teens, then that can be taken into account as a mitigating factor because it would be unfair to to make someone or to hold someone fully responsible for something that happened to them at a time before they were able to take responsibility for their actions. So sometimes it can be it can be a mitigating factor.
0: Now, there's a concept referred to as moral culpability that comes into all of this discussion. What does that mean to the sentencing judge?
1: Well, really, it means how bad do you think this is? And often assessments of moral culpability may be very revealing about the values and standards of the judge. So assessing moral culpability would be one of the most difficult things, I think, we do because we are making a moral judgement and normally one is not called on to do that in life. But it is an opportunity to say how bad you think particular conduct is.
0: Now, I think for some offences, the Parliament has given you another guidepost, mm. as it were, which is the standard non-parole period. Mm. Is that what you look at second, if you like, after you've looked at the maximum? Very much so,
1: yes, very much so. And
0: what, how do you use the standard non-parole period? What, what, how do you bring that into your thinking?
1: Well, the standard non-parole period, for example, for murder, as has been mentioned, the maximum penalty is life but the um, standard non-parole period is 20 years so that gives you an indication that in the usual ordinary mid-range murder if there is such a thing that it it would be expected that the person would spend 20 years in custody as as the non-parole period and that's that's a very useful parameter and it, it has because of the setting of the standard non-parole period, I have noticed that the sentences for murder after that has been set have been significantly higher than they were previously.
0: Well, I think we've had standard non-parole periods since 2002 or 2003. Quite a long time, yes. So you can see a change, can yes. you, in the sentences yeah. in that, in that yeah. time? Uh, with a concentration around the 20-year non-parole period? Yes.
1: Yes, I would say so.
0: So if someone receives 20 years non-parole, what what will the head sentence usually be?
1: Well, usually there's a a ratio of 75% between the standard non-parole period and the total term and the um, New South Wales statute provides for that unless there are special circumstances and if there are special circumstances, that ratio is adjusted downwards to mean that a person has a shorter period in custody and a longer period on parole. So instead of it being 75%, it might be, say, 60% or even 50%.
0: Justice Hume, can you tell us what is the purpose of parole?
2: The the idea of having a non-parole period in a sentence is to allow an offender some mitigation on the term of a sentence of imprisonment that will allow for, ideally, um, a period in the community where they'll be supervised or where, through that or some other means, their rehabilitation might be enhanced. Um, There are some cases in which no parole period is appropriate at all, and they're rare cases, Uh, usually in circumstances where there's a repeat offender who has abused chances uh, of rehabilitation that have been afforded to him or her in the past, where a judge might decline to fix a non-parole period at all. So if there's a sentence of five years imposed, there will be no non-parole, the offender will serve the entire five years. But that means that they are released at the end of the sentence without any opportunity for community supervision at all. That's why it's a rare thing to occur. but. Usually a judge is mindful of the rehabilitation prospects of an offender and will assess a non-parole period with that in mind. There is a legislative um, restriction in that a judge cannot um, impose something that is less than 75% of the overall term of the sentence unless the judge considers their special circumstances in the case. And if there are, the judge has a discretion to fix a lower percentage of the overall sentence as the non-parole period and that usually what
0: what what can be special circumstances
2: special circumstances might be for example um, a person has uh, a mental impairment an intellectual impairment or mental illness in which they need an extended period of supervision not just the usual period that might be allowed for in a 75 percent non-parole period situation but they need a a lengthier period of supervision to help them to reintegrate into society, to find employment, to uh, engage with treatment and rehabilitation services and the like. And if there was a strong case made for um, an offender needing a longer period uh, of that supervision by a parole authority within the community, then the judge might well find there are special circumstances.
0: It's not uncommon, at least in my experience, to hear members of the general public Criticise the sentence which a judge is imposed in a particular case, normally the cases that get a lot of publicity, maybe a fairly serious crime. And very often that criticism is directed to the judge being soft because the offender had a particularly deprived background or troubled youth and similar issues. Um, how much uh, can those sorts of issues uh, play out? In the ultimate
2: decisions, to the appropriate sentence. There's two things I'd like to say in response to to that question. But I think that the nub of it is is this: what often does not receive much attention in media reporting of cases uh, that in which a sentence has been imposed is that there may be something compelling about uh, the, the subjective case, the personal circumstances of the offender. Uh, An offender might have an intellectual uh, impairment, uh, a mental illness. Um, They might have derived from an upbringing of deprivation or dysfunction where they've been exposed to um, drug abuse or violence, um, where they've had no role models to guide them in the formative years of their life. Those are things that are uh, uh, uncontroversially count. In favour of a more, uh, or a, sorry, a less serious uh, sentence being imposed, people such as these are less uh, lesser examples to hold out to others as being um, uh, pe- people to to, to, de- to demonstrate deterrence uh, in sentencing. Um, The moral culpability, as we sometimes call it, or moral blameworthiness of an offender uh, is uh, recognised as an important feature to take into account in the assessment of a sentence. That, as I said, often doesn't get much attention in media reports of sentencing. The other thing I'd like to say in response to the question is this. There have been a number of studies done in... uh, the last decade or so, where um, members of the public, not legally trained, have been asked to uh, indicate their opinion as to what an appropriate sentence should be in a particular case. They've been given all of the the facts of a case, um, the details of the offending, as well as the personal circumstances of the offender. Uh, Sometimes these people are just randomly selected members of the public. Sometimes they're actual jurors who've sat in on trials of offenders and they are asked with the light of that knowledge what sentence they think uh, should be imposed. And it's been indicated that more often than not, it's the same or a lesser sentence than the judge actually imposed in the case, uh, which tends to suggest that judges are not so much out of touch uh, as uh, some media reports might in the
0: and I assume what's happening there is that when the member of the public is made aware of all of the circumstances, as you say, including the background of the offender, then they get a different picture to what they might receive by reading a newspaper, which talks only about the physical elements and maybe horrific nature of the crime itself.
2: Yes, that's 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 the key to I think uh, public awareness of the full um, details of the offence and of the offender which uh, a judge must take into account uh, and which uh, some media reports often do not.
0: Can we change tack a little? Justice Adams and I want to talk to you about what happens in the courtroom when an offender is up for sentence.
1: In my experience, there is a delay because often the offender wishes to assemble evidence of the offender's own life and subjective circumstances. And it's also not uncommon for um, a psychological or psychiatric report to be obtained on the offender, and that takes time.
0: Why, why, why do you get that report? What's the relevance of that psychiatric or psychological report?
1: I think often the, um, the offender and those appearing for the defender want to give the court a, a view in the round of the offender, Whereas if it's particularly if it's a conviction after trial, the trial is really concerned only with proof of the offence charged rather than matters personal to the offender.
0: Mm. And uh, does, that, does the offender have his choice of or her choice of um, psychiatrist or psychologist or is that done by the state?
1: Well, it depends on, on money. If the offender is funded by legal aid, then I understand there's a panel... Of experts who could be available to um, to examine the offender and obtain a pre sentence report. But I think if the offender is privately funded, then the offender could retain, the offender will, or his or her solicitors could retain a psychiatrist for that purpose.
0: And the normal delay between the finding of guilty and, and the sentence hearing is, is what sort of period?
1: It could be a period of months. Sometimes it depends on the availability of the legal representatives or how long it takes to get a report. But in my experience, sentence hearings tend to be uh, take a day or a day or two. So it's relatively easy for the court to find the time to list those and it tends to be more practical matters which cause a delay.
0: And is judgment then given on the spot or does the judge take time? or further time to consider?
1: Well, in, in this court, and speaking for myself, I try and give myself a week, but no more than a week. And I do that because um, judges in lower courts who are um, imposing a lot more sentences than we are tend to impose sentences straight after the sentence hearing. But in this court... The sentences tend to be longer and potentially the offences more complicated, and the sentencing um, reasons or the reasons for the sentence judgment are published. So, I, I think it's important to take a lot of care with the words one chooses to explain the sentence. And also, I, I like to sleep on it or not, as the case may be, because it's a very serious decision and I like to think carefully about it. And sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and think about it. So that's why I think a week is a good of time. And I might well have other hearings during the day throughout that week, but out of hours um, I can think about
0: it. Yeah. And what actually happens at the sentence hearing? Um, obviously the psychiatrist or psychologist yeah. tenders, a, they tender a report
1: from... Yes. I mean, you, just, just being quite back to basics, the crown tenders its material, which might be the criminal history of the offender or the custodial history, the charge, and if there are any agreed facts, the Crown will tender those. And then the um, also the Crown, in the course of a sentence hearing, there may be a victim impact statement and the Crown will either have the victim read out that impact statement in the court or the Crown prosecutor might read it out if the victim doesn't feel comfortable reading that out in court. So those documents are tendered by the Crown and that's what happens. In the accused then, oh sorry, the offender might then tender a psychiatric report. The offender may also give evidence him, her, himself or herself, potentially to explain or to express remorse. There may also be um, character evidence on behalf of the offender to, sh- to demonstrate how out of character
0: it was, or, or, oral evidence. Some, oral some, evidence. Someone in the witness box. Yeah.
1: Sometimes that, but more frequently character references mm. by people who who don't come to give evidence and matters of that nature.
0: You often hear, um, or perhaps read in the newspapers more than hear, complaints about judges being soft
1: mm.
0: on on crime, mm. uh, and very often those stories come with an account of the objective circumstances mm-hmm. of the offence and maybe some um, uh, comment or record of some of the subjective personal characteristics of the offender, mm-hmm. often not not all of those factors, but the complaint commonly made that you hear anyway mm-hmm. is the judges are soft because they've been persuaded that because um, John Smith had a bad childhood, therefore he shouldn't receive... Uh, the same penalty for a serious offence. How did judges respond to that sort of criticism?
1: Well, my um, my instinctive response would be, I suppose, twofold. One experience I've had, certainly as a judge of the Common Law Division, is to realise that, well, first off, I've had a very privileged life and I have had had known two parents who loved me very much and loved each other and that's a very privileged position to be in. But also that a lot of the crime that, that we see is committed by people who have had very unfortunate childhoods because an unfortunate childhood may lead to drug addiction and that may lead to crime and one sees that particularly in the bails list. So I think it's it's certainly the case that as a judge, one sees perhaps a, a much um, deeper and wider view of what goes on in society than, than when one is not a judge. And one sees a lot more crime and one, one sees more perhaps about the causes of crime. So as to whether we go soft, I would challenge anyone who thinks that a sentence is too low, I would encourage them to read the reasons for sentence because in the reasons for sentence the judge needs to explain the factors taken into account and often when one reads the sentencing judgment of a judge one can then understand better um, how it looks from the offender's point of view but also from the community's point of view.
0: I think one of the issues, I'm not sure whether you've seen much of it, but one of the issues that confronts the judiciary in sentencing is that many offenders have a childhood which reveals sexual assault Mm. as a young person, very often under 12 years of age, which uh, has a well-known pathway towards criminal activity.
1: Mm.
0: Have you seen many who fall into that category when you've been dealing with offenders?
1: Not so much when I have been sentencing offenders myself but certainly in the Court of Criminal Appeal I've very much seen that and when one, when one sees that kind of pathway it would seem to me most unjust to hold an offender fully responsible and regard that person as as blameworthy as somebody who had not who had, not had that experience previously.
0: Mm. That's hard for the general public, of course, to understand, I think.
1: Well, uh, I think that that means that we need to explain it better in yeah. the reasons for sentence.
0: Now, victim impact statements are a relatively recent um, mm. phenomenon in the courts, but are they uh, always received in, in this court, in, in after all, in the sentencing process, or are there cases where you don't see a victim impact statement?
1: There are cases where I I don't see them, particularly in the Commonwealth offences, like terrorism or foreign incursions. They're rare. They're they're very common in murder trials, but not invariable. But I think they're a very very important thing. And of course, in murder trials, it's the it's the survivors, it's the family of the deceased who who give that evidence. Mm. And how
0: does the judge use? the material that's in the Victim Impact Statement?
1: Um, well, in um, in murder trials, almost not at all in terms of the sentence because there's no different value placed on different lives.
0: That's in, it's a question that's been debated, I think, for mm, some years. It yeah.
1: has. Mm. Um, but but in, in other cases... Um, and these are the matters I've seen in the court. Let's time. go back
0: to, yeah. The assumption there is that the impact when someone is killed on the survivors will be as devastating for one family as it will be for another.
1: Yeah, but also that if somebody, say, is a very isolated street person living on the street, the mm. loss of their life is mm. as harmful to the community and the fabric of our society as if some very prominent philanthropist were
0: to die. So the public should understand that in that respect, every murder starts off from the same... ..the judge starts from the same position... Yes. ..with respect to the loss of life. That's right. Mm -hmm. But it's still important, is it not, for um, the family of the um, deceased to be able to express their grief and loss... I think it's
1: hugely important because often I think it may be the only occasion where the victims of crime or the family or friends of the deceased have an opportunity to express their loss. And one one matter that one can do as a sentencing judge is to acknowledge that loss publicly and in the course of imposing a sentence and, and... giving my reasons, I always express the sympathy, my sympathy and the sympathy of the court to the family for the loss of life. And in my experience and to my observation, that gives some relief and some comfort to the people who are there.
0: I think it was more than 20 years ago that the Court of Criminal Appeal began developing guideline judgments. Justice Hume, can you help us to understand what a guideline judgment is and their role in sentencing.
2: This this was uh, a, a step taken by the Court of Criminal Appeal before standard non-parole periods uh, came into being in 2002-03. Um, there was a concern, I think, first of all, in the, uh, the sentences being imposed for armed robbery offences. Um, and so the there was uh, a feeling within the uh, Court of Criminal Appeal and, the, and not only the judges but those who appeared before the Court of Criminal Appeal that there was a need for a guideline as to um, what should be the range of sentence imposed in a typical case of, of armed robbery. And uh, so the, um, the, the first guideline judgment was published by the court in which it identified a range of factors that might be found in a typical example of an armed robbery offence. A young offender with no or little criminal history armed with a weapon that uh, uh, might be capable of causing harm, features such as that. Um, It it identified a number of factors and said that uh, an offence that uh, fell within that uh, description um, should generally uh, attract a sentence uh, within a certain range. And so that was a guideline that um, was uh, available for sentencing judges to have recourse to, in addition to the maximum penalty for the offence to uh, assist them in identifying the appropriate sentence for the case before them. And how many guideline judgments are there now? The, the, this, this has not continued so much. There, I think there's three or four. Um, there's a guideline in relation to armed robbery. There's another one in relation to um, driving causing death or grievous bodily harm. There was another one in relation to the offence of burglary, breaking into and stealing. Uh, but then standard non parole periods came along and the, um, the interest in pursuing guideline judgments being issued by the Court of Criminal Appeal waned. And um, and there haven't been many for quite some years. I think
0: there was also some criticism from the High Court,
2: you think? The, the High Court did. Uh, criticised the approach that the New South Wales Court was taking in relation to this, essentially because there was a concern that the guidelines were too prescriptive and uh, provided something of a straitjacket for sentencing judges. And uh, the Court of Criminal Appeal uh, modified its approach to the issue as a result of that.
0: From what you've said, uh, as we've come through these different elements, it would seem that there is a, a, a tension between instruction from the legislature and discretion in the hands of the sentencing judge. Uh, is that right? Is it?
2: I, I don't know that, as a judge, I've, I, I have discerned a, a tension myself or amongst my fellow judges. But there, but there, there is there is a tension. Um, sometimes legislation is passed to. Uh, limit or somehow constrain the exercise of a discretion uh, in sentencing. Um, judges are not um, intent on doing whatever they uh, they like. They they are very mindful of uh, what is just and appropriate in a particular case. But sometimes there can be um, a, a public interest in uh, identifying features that judges should. Um, or may have regard to in sentencing and and the government might intervene by uh, uh, enacting legislation that uh, requires judges to take into account certain things. The legislation doesn't lay down anything as mandatory, but it it, um, it certainly uh, uh, imposes guidelines or guideposts for judges to consider.
0: Uh, You mentioned the valuable work of the Judicial Commission uh, and... uh I think the Commission has been responsible for, well, since its early days, I think, in gathering statistics on sentences that have been imposed throughout New South Wales uh, and publishing them so that they're available for judges and practitioners. Is that a useful resource for a sentencing judge?
2: It can be. Um, There there were really two things that I regard as uh, valuable contributions to sentencing made by the Judicial Commission. There's statistics and there's also the summaries of of cases from the Court of Criminal Appeal that the um, judicial information research system provided by the Judicial Commission provides. The statistics give you a very broad assessment of what a sentence might be having regard to the offence and certain attributes like the age of the offender, whether they've got a prior record and a couple of other features, not very specific. And so if you enter some parameters like those, and it'll tell you that uh, for people who have those features or a case that has those features, a sentence, uh, sentences in the past have been imposed of this type and you can see a graph which demonstrates a range. Um, but that, that's a very broad indication. But it does give you a, a range just from which you can start in
0: terms of the history of it, it, sentencing for that offence.
2: You can start from it. Um, my preference is to end with it right. um, by assessing a sentence and then doing a check. While while I'm confident with that, I'll go to the statistic and say, "Well, look, am I in the range?" And it'll confirm, and that'll make me feel more comfortable with my right. decision. The other thing that the Judicial Commission has provided us with are short summaries of Court of Criminal Appeal cases where many hundreds or thousands of sentencing cases the court has considered are there. So you can enter some criteria in relation to those cases and get very short summaries of the actual cases themselves and their features. And if you're looking at sentencing, say, for a drug supply case where the amount of drug imposed was a certain quantity, Um, you can look through similar cases where drug supply in that amount have been sentenced in the past and you can very quickly determine uh, a range that is close to the the case you're you're considering. Um, So there's uh, two two really important things that the judicial Commission has provided. Yes, and of course, like everything else in society,
0: over the years, we've increased the number of offenders, therefore increased the number of judges, Going back 50 years, there would have been relatively few judges in the Supreme Court who were sentencing offenders. But today, how many are in the Common Law Division of the Court?
2: There are something in the order of 22 judges, I think, in the Common Law Division of the Court who um, exercise the criminal jurisdiction of the Court.
0: And I assume, without descending to deciding individual cases, but I assume there's a constant discussion between judges about sentencing patterns that have emerged and issues that have been uh, uh, raised in particular cases. Would that be right?
2: We're talking amongst ourselves all the time um, about cases that are before us, uh, cases that we have when we are sitting on the court of criminal appeal. Uh, We talk all the time and we, 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 we learn from the experience of our colleagues.
0: You have been listening to Justice Adamson and Justice Hume, both judges of the New South Wales Supreme Court. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.